Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for Elliot's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at Elias.com slash events. So we just wrapped up this big three-part series about living in the United States with DACA and leaving the country through this process called advanced parole. I was finally able to visit my birth country of Mexico after 30 years of not being there. If you want to listen to that story, go check out parts one, two, and three, a little lower on our podcast feed. Telling this story was kind of an emotional roller coaster for me. And honestly, it was one of those things where right when you're wrapping up, you start coming across so much you want to include. So that's what we have for you today. A couple weeks ago, I came across this article written by Caroline Tracy in The New Yorker called Fighting for the Right to Come and Go. It's essentially about a group of return migrants in Mexico City figuring out themselves what it is like to live in Mexico after calling the U.S. home for such a long time. She interviewed members of this nonprofit organization called Pocha House. Pocha means you're kind of American, you're kind of Mexican, you're somewhere in the middle, and I totally get that. This could have been me. When I was wondering what to do after I graduated school in 2012, I didn't know if I was going to move to Mexico. I didn't know if I was going to stay in this country and stay undocumented. And now that I read these stories, I think they're a part of this whole DACA slash advanced parole series we talk about. Yes, we can talk about advanced parole, the status of DACA. But the reality is there's a whole different version of being an immigrant. That could mean that you're a return migrant in Mexico or other countries, or it means that you're undocumented in this country and there's still no solution. And you have people in this country who are undocumented who don't have DACA. That's about 11 million people. So there really isn't a way to capture every story, specifically these personal ones, but I did want to share this with y'all. So here's part four of our three-part series, Finding Home con DACA. Oh my goodness. I just, um, your story published right when I returned from Mexico from my advanced parole trip. So I'm just, you know, I've, I've been looking forward to this. Great. I've been looking forward to it too. And thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Um, at the center of the story, really, it's about like migration, right? From and to the United States, which has looked differently throughout the decades. And, you know, what really impacted me from your story that it concentrates on return migrants who might have been considered dreamers in the U.S. or DACA recipients, but now live and work in Mexico. Walk us through that. Sure. Return migrant is basically an umbrella term that includes both individuals who have been deported from the United States and individuals who made their own decision to return. But I think that that sort of element of decision, most of them would tell you, doesn't feel like a decision at all. It's sort of factors that are compelling them. So a lot of them refer to it as forced return. The history of immigration organizing in the U.S., tends to be about the right to stay in the U.S. and the right to belong 
in the US. Um, so if you look at something like the Chicano movement from the 1960s and 70s, there is this idea that the US Southwest is a homeland for Mexican people or the Mexican American people, and that therefore there's a sense of belonging. If you fast forward to the Dreamer movement, there's a fight for the right to a pathway to citizenship for individuals who grew up undocumented. So it's all centering on the right to remain in the United States. And once young people started returning to Mexico in, in fairly large numbers, which is a novel phenomenon because before the 90s, you didn't have so many young people growing up undocumented in the United States. Mm. Um, they start to organize back in Mexico and the right to remain in the United States is no longer the point of the fight because they're no longer in the United States. So it becomes about one support from the Mexican government to have uh, what they call a dignified return. So financial resources, access to job training, that kind of thing. And then also the right to come and go, which is what I wrote about more in my article, which is pressuring the United States authorities to offer tourist visas to individuals who have returned to Mexico, but still have family in the US, still have friends and other ties and want to be able to at least visit them. Bocha is not a great word to use. It's derogatory. It's kind of shade telling you you're not really here or there. You don't really belong. And I wouldn't say that to someone walking down the street. But as I was doing this series on advanced parole and DACA, I finally realized that I embrace being pocho. <laughs> and um, that was something that when I read your article, it kind of hit for me. I'm like, there are people just like me in Mexico, feeling pocho themselves in a country that may be sort of new to them culturally. So let me let me just, uh, let me ask you, what is cool about Pocha House? Pocha House is amazing. It's wonderful. It's a place that is filled with art and political activism, and that does this amazing job of bringing the two together. Like there's a room called the resistance room where there are all kinds of like zines that people from the community have made, collages, all kinds of art. And then there's also this incredibly powerful political advocacy that they do by kind of like doing this community building through art. Then it translates into really like formal, legal, uh, bureaucratic advocacy. I think part of the discourse here in this country, in the U.S., like we totally forget about what happens when people are removed from the U.S. or uh, or leave on their own. And again, like you said earlier, a lot of people still call the U.S. home. But for me, I think it was impactful to see these stories, these people you wrote about, because I'm like, that could have been me, right? I remember in 2012, when DACA wasn't around yet, I had graduated school, and I'm like, I don't know what's next. Like, I couldn't legally work. And so there was always this conversation with undocumented folks my age with, what do you do after you're done with, you know, your university degree? So I just want to know about who they are, you know. Tell me more about the folks you interviewed and you talked to. Absolutely. There are so many places to start. I think that, like you mentioned, DACA is passed in 2012. There were a number of people who had graduated high school by then and didn't have access to college because of the high cost of non-resident tuition or inaccessible financial aid. And so there are a number of people who had returned to Mexico by the time that DACA was passed. 
And then there are also individuals who have received DACA and then decided to return with DACA because uh, it still feels like a precarious status or non-status. And then there are also individuals who are deported or who didn't graduate from high school or have had run-ins with the law and who were never eligible for DACA for those reasons. And so there is a pretty wide diversity of people in the deportee and returning community. There are U.S.-born children of return migrants, all the way up to return migrants who have worked in the United States for the majority of their adult lives. It spans the gamut of English proficiency and educational level and all ages, gender and sexuality, everything. It's a very diverse community. I guess the the people that I observed doing really a lot of organizing, a lot of them were women, either young women, um, like in their late 20s, early 30s, or uh, mothers who had sort of taken on the challenge for their whole family of arranging things bureaucratically and logistically. So uh, doing that process of registering their children's Mexican nationality and getting them enrolled in public schools, which is more of a challenge in Mexico if you don't have Mexican residency. And then many of them ended up sort of doing another internal migration to a larger city so that they could study or work or have more of a community. Sometimes, specifically when it comes to immigration and or politics, I think things get confusing. I think people get misinformed. And for me, it is this story of return migration or just migration overall in general. It has a lot to do with people's personal lives. So I actually want to play something someone sent to us, someone who is uh, who's Colombian and came to the States when he was young, tried to find his footing here, and eventually left back to Colombia because he couldn't really, really find himself navigating the way that U.S. is set up, you know, for immigrants. My name is Juan Manuel Calero Canaval, and I'm originally from Cali, Colombia. I moved to the U.S. when I was four. My parents left for a mix of reasons, escaping violence for their safety and professional reasons. In my 20s, I realized I was spending a lot of my life, a lot of my energy, fighting demons that don't belong to me. I asked myself if I want to give my life trying to make the U.S. better, if the U.S. could even be better. And the answer for me was no. So I moved back to Colombia. I'm currently in med school. And I'm honestly way happier than I ever was in my entire life, to be honest. I obviously miss my friends and I miss the community I had established. But at the end of the day, I just feel like I had to come back to Colombia to feel and find and be home. Just kind of want to ask about your initial reaction to that, Caroline. I don't know if that kind of resonates with other people's stories you heard while you were in Mexico City. Definitely. I would say that one aspect of return that a number of people mentioned to me was really impactful for them was that it made them realize that the stress and mental health impacts of living undocumented in the U.S. had been really weighing heavily on them and really affecting their lives, physical health and mental health both in very negative ways. And that on return to Mexico, it's not as though like 
it magically solves everyone's mental health problems, but that specific aspect of stress and stress-related health effects was uh, surprisingly diminished for a lot of people. They just didn't realize how big a piece of their sort of mental health load it had occupied. So obviously there are other problems um, that the other challenges that arise from such a traumatic event as a major migration, such a huge life event, but that aspect of no longer living undocumented, I think um, has been really impactful for a lot of people. So uh, that that aspect does definitely resonates with interviews that I had with a number of people. You know, something that you said just now kind of reminded me when I was in Mexico and I was kind of just hanging out and not really thinking about the way Los Angeles or, you know, the United States kind of has this beat of a drum where you're like going and going and going. It's kind of like fast paced, at least here in Los Angeles. And for the first time, I feel like in my life, I just was able to breathe. And I think it was that veil of being undocumented, of having a DACA status in this country was kind of like, okay, that doesn't really pertain to my experience right now in Mexico. I'm actually enjoying myself. I mean, it's just being able to be in Mexico allowed me to figure out that being undocumented is traumatizing. And sometimes you, it's too much to handle. And for me, it was like, it's kind of unfair that I couldn't experience this moment until now. Um, And to be honest, like, I don't know when I'm going to experience it again, but I also think about folks who will never experience this, who will never be able to feel the way I'm feeling, the peace, the kind of just realizing that there's a little bit more to life and there is happiness to these great moments. Yeah, I think that um, the article really centers on this inequality in tourist visa access that Mexican nationals have and return migrants in particular have. And in Mexico, in the past, about a quarter of tourist visa applications were denied. And there is a visible class divide in terms of who has access to them readily, for whom they are very easy to obtain and who struggles to obtain them and maybe has been turned on multiple times or uh, has to hire someone to help them with the application at a great cost to them. It's something that's pretty much taken for granted among more upper-class Mexicans who have the spending power to travel, who tend to have lighter skin, whereas those who the United States sees as more of a risk of overstaying tend to be from lower class background, lower educational level, often have darker skin. Those people are more likely to be turned down. As you know, uh, as you reported on this, things like DACA are in jeopardy. There isn't movement on immigration reform. So I just wonder if how, how all of this really does impact the movement of of people just globally. And this is, you know, folks have been written about, been in media before. Why did you choose to write this now? I think that one thing that is going on very present in the media right now is this idea that there's a surge or like there's an unprecedented number of people who are like flinging themselves to the southern border, right? Like there's this really dramatic language around migration and around the desire to come to the United States. 
And I think that it's been kind of spun in a way that doesn't necessarily accord with reality. And the reality is that, yes, there are more people on the move than there ever have been before, but it's also not this sort of like wholehearted desire for the American dream. I think in most people's cases, they want a safe and secure livelihood and uh, a, a safe place to live. And that's something that the U.S. in in militarizing its border has been denying a lot of people, right? Um, and so this angle on the story of individuals who have left the United States and are in this long-term process of reestablishing their lives in Mexico, I think, sheds this other angle of like, this isn't just this simple northward movement to the United States. This is like global mobility that is highly individual and idiosyncratic and different people have different needs and desires. And a lot more people are in motion than ever have been, but it's also um, the, the sort of flows and vectors and directions are more complicated. And we need to see those complications and see how many different aspects of migration there are. Caroline, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on here and making time for us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Caroline Tracy, author of the New Yorker article, Fighting for the Right to Come and Go. Thank you so much for tuning in to this special part four of the three-part series, Finding Home con DACA. If you want to learn more about return migrants and Pocha House in Mexico City, go check out Caroline's article in the show notes. We'll link it there for you. Finding Home con DACA is a special series from Elias Studios and How to LA. How to LA is hosted by me, Brian De Los Santos. This episode was produced by Evan Jacoby. Our other producers are Megan Botel and Victoria Alejandro. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.